Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. The Olympic Peninsula of Washington State is a wild and woolly place, even now in the 21st century. That's no doubt largely because the heart of the peninsula is taken up by Olympic National Park, a more than 900,000-acre jigsaw puzzle of glaciers and peaks, rainforests, rivers, and Pacific coastline. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. I've often viewed Olympic National Park as three parks in one, the coastal area battered by the Pacific Ocean, the inland rainforests that cloak the Ho, Quinault, and Salduck areas, and the high, craggy landscape embracing nearly 200 glaciers. If you've never visited the park, or have only experienced it once for a few days, our guest on today's show will no doubt make you want to start planning for a trip to Olympic National Park in the Olympic Peninsula. Tim McNulty is a prolific writer who lives in the shadow of the National Park. He has a new book out, Salmon, Cedar, Rock and Rain, that is the perfect introduction on this ecosystem of not just the National Park, but of the surrounding Olympic Peninsula. We'll be back in a minute with Tim. Maximize your savings with Interior Federal Credit Union. Explore the benefits of opening multiple certificates to diversify your savings strategy. Discover how Interior FCU's range of certificate options can help you achieve your financial goals with competitive rates and flexible terms. Learn more at interiorfcu.org. Federally insured by NCUA. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Petrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com, P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Hey, Tim, great to have you on The Traveler. Wonderful to be here, Kurt. So you live in an incredible place. Um, I've visited it a couple times, uh, the Olympic Peninsula, and wish I were a little bit closer because it's a long drive from Utah. It's a fascinating backyard. I mean, the mountains, the coast, the rainforests. How did you end up there? Well, I was, uh, I, I guess, uh, a young young fellow uh, just out of college uh, on the East Coast uh, had been uh, filling my head with with uh, West Coast poetry during my last couple of few years in colleges and was looking for uh, a wonderful place to go get inspired and write and see what became of it. And then my travels around the, the West from the Rockies down into the Southwest, up the, up the coastal areas, the Cascades, the Olympics and on into Canada. The Olympic Peninsula was the place that just uh, stole my heart away. It, it um, had, you know, mountains, wild rivers, incredible old growth forest, a long stretch of undeveloped wild coastline. It was uh, just uh, everything I loved about New England, uh, kind of uh, on steroids. <laughs> it was wild. It was uh, uh, 
pretty uh, cheap place to live, and I thought I would just stay here and give it a try and see what happens. Uh, a lot of rain there from time to time, no? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let's see. Mount Olympus gets about uh, 240 inches a year. Uh, the rain, the rainforest just below it at Hull, about 160. We're in the rain shadow, the the backbone uh, little sub-range of the Olympics, the Bailey Range, holds back a fair amount of moisture. So over here in the uh, Dungeness watershed in the rain shadow, we get about 30 inches here. Down the valley, it's closer to 14. So it's really one of the steepest uh, precipitation gradients in the world, going from you know, uh, a couple, you know, a couple hundred inches and more on the Bailey Range down to you know, less than 20, uh, 35 miles away. And and that kind of uh, rainfall diversity um, really helps with this incredible biologic biological diversity of the Olympic Peninsula and the park. You know, that really is an amazing amount of precipitation. I mean, you know, I've lived in, in Wyoming and Utah for the past, geez, almost four decades, and um, it's a little drier here. <laughs> A little bit, a little bit, yeah. It's a little drier most everywhere than the west side of the peninsula. For sure, for sure. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction to today's show, you you are a prolific writer. Um, you have at least 10 books to your credit, not to mention your poetry. You've won a National Outdoor Book Award, and you're also currently the vice president of a Olympic Park Advocates. No shortage of material for you to, to mold and play with out there. I'm just wondering how you find the time to do it. I kind of I, I kind of lucked out with with, with this place. I, I uh, didn't intend to be uh, drawn into uh, environmental conservation work when I when I first landed. But uh, one of the very first places um, I, I fell in love with was uh, a northern stretch of coast, a beach called Shai Shai, Point of the Arches, Shai Shai sure. Beach. Uh, at that time, it was owned by uh, a number of timber companies, and the uh, clear cuts were kind of uh, marching in inland out toward the coast. So I um, found another fellow soul who was already involved in writing letters to try to get that place preserved, and uh, I started as well. Uh, pretty soon met some of the legendary old uh, conservationists uh, over in Seattle, Polly Dyer and uh, uh, Phil Zaleski and uh, many, many others, Harvey Manning, and uh, kind of uh, got recruited into the uh, ongoing citizens uh, effort to uh, save and protect as much of the Olympics, the Wild Olympics as possible. Been doing that ever since. Yeah. And um, the battles never end, do they? I mean, there's a long history of um, headbutting over over the Olympic Peninsula and about the Olympic forests. I mean, I think you can go back to to John Muir and um, the first uh, chief of the Gifford. Right, right, yeah. Uh, you know, Karsten Lean wrote a splendid book on the uh, the the historic battle to create Olympic National Park, and then and then the battle to keep it wild and 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 forested. Uh, uh, Olympic battleground, he called it, and he he traces, yeah, he traces that battle and all the way all the way back to, uh, you know, in in um, 1897, the Olympic Forest Reserve was created uh, by uh, along with all of the early uh, Western forest uh, preserves, and it was 2.2 million acres of lands, and then of course um, uh, the, the the issue was between um, Gifford Pinchot utilization and John Muir preservation and yeah. um, oh within a decade uh three quarters of a million acres 
some of the most incredibly rich, productive, low-elevation, old-growth forest lands were removed from the monument, open to settlement. Uh, settlement, of course, uh, ended up in the hands of timber companies, and uh, all those lands were, were, were very soon logged after that. And the, and the uh, you know, the, the, the battle continues. It does. It does. You know, I'm curious, though, with, with the, the precipitation out there and the, the fertile soils out there, how long does it take a logged area to, I mean, certainly not recover to, you know, trees hundreds of years old, but, but to start to look like a forest again? Well, that's, that's an interesting question. And uh, when, when areas are logged as they were then uh, and left alone, it was kind of a, a, a sloppy clear cutting where uh, trees that were crooked, trees that were hard to get, trees that were in ravines and so forth were left. And then often it it burned after that and uh, and trees seeded back in from, from native forests and the second growth forests that came in uh, a while ago, say, you know, before the, the Second World War, had a lot of diversity in them, uh, a lot of diversity of, of species and uh, and ages. And uh, those forests are now uh, approaching a, a century or more, and they're well on their way to old growth. They have uh, a lot of the characteristics, uh, habitat characteristics and, and, and structural characteristics of old growth. And they're pretty valuable forests we're finding. They're incredibly important for carbon storage, as well as habitat, stream protection, salmon habitat. Um, and those forests are now uh, looked at as, as quite valuable. Um, to get to a true old growth forest, we're talking, a, you know, 150 to 250 to 300 years where all of the characteristics of old growth, standing snags and down logs and... Uh, diversity of uh, understory uh, and overstory openings and, and 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 so forth all the things that make forests rich and great habitats for species like uh, spotted owls and uh, marble murrelets um, those forests do take a while but uh, uh, a logged over now a logged over uh, and planted clear cut begins to start to resemble the forest again in about 45 to 60 years yeah I'm curious we're, we're going to get into to climate change a little bit down the down the road here but with with that change in forest diversity does it does it make it more prone to burning um you know diversity and and uh, structural diversity is uh uh is is a good is a good thing for for uh for fire control Fires that are more prone to burn are generally younger forests. Uh, when forests are planted with Douglas firs, they grow up dense. Um, for the first several uh, decades, there's uh, ladder fuels, uh, lower branches going all the way up to the crown, and uh, no breaks, no gaps. And fires tend to move through younger forests much more quickly and uh, and thoroughly than they do with, with older forests. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Now, probably the book that introduced me to you and helped me learn a lot about the Olympic National Park was your 1996 title, Olympic National Park, A Natural History. Um, I, I still have it in my bookcase. I refer to it often when I'm writing about Olympic National Park. At the time, at least, if not today, it served um, as a consummate natural history guide to the National Park. Which makes me wonder what spurred your current book, Salmon, Cedar, Rock, and Rain. How did that title come about? 
well, a Seven Seater Rock and Rain was a, a collaborative project. Um, one of the very popular outdoor publishers over here, you probably know, are the Mountaineers books. And uh, they have an imprint called Braided River. Uh, and uh, the Braided River uh, publishers do primarily large format, full color books with a conservation orientation. And um, they they did a book on the North Cascades some years ago, and it had been in discussion among the uh, the editors and publisher that it'd be good to do an Olympics book. And so um, I went to a meeting some years ago with uh, uh, some of the Braided River folks, uh, the writer Nautilus David Guderson, who was also interested uh, in a book on the Olympics, and uh, and we all started talking about the possibility of a, of a project. Um, one of the things that uh, that we all agreed upon early on was there should be some Native American voices uh, in any book on the Olympic Peninsula and, and photographs from a range of different photographers. And so that became kind of the operating uh, uh, the operating principle for a newer book that would go beyond just Olympic National Park, but talk about the entire peninsula, um, the, the, the the tribes. Uh, the different agencies doing different kinds of work on the peninsula, as well as the Park Service, Forest Service, wilderness areas, rivers, and so forth. Yeah, interesting. Felt, yeah, I felt that this one would be a a complement to uh, you know to the natural history, which is which is in its fourth edition now, uh, still in print, and uh, would also be a little bit um, easier and and prettier way to uh, get into appreciating the peninsula, perhaps appeal to a, a more a wider and more diverse audience. Yeah, yeah, we're gonna get we're gonna get into that prettier side as well. This is Kurt Repencheck with National Parks Traveler. Our guest today is Tim McNulty. He's got a new book out, uh, Salmon Cedar Rock and Rain, Washington's Olympic Peninsula. We're gonna take a short break and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make the National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation at nationalparkstraveler.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. So, Tim, as you mentioned before the break, um, your new book is a rich, robust project. It's heavily illustrated with some incredible photos. Um, the one on page 123 that depicts a rather large and red-colored Pacific octopus with a scuba diver 
that really grabbed my attention. Um, yeah, mine as well. Mine too. <laughs> the editorial content, as you mentioned, is a collaboration of sorts with a number of indigenous writers. Why, why were they brought into the project? Can you go into that a little bit more deeply? Well, sure. Um, you know, with with uh, with uh, much of my writing and and some of the other uh, writers who who write about the park, our our focus is the non-human community. And um, in my natural history, uh, you you may recall um, that there was uh, a couple of chapters of human history. One was the conservation history, and another another was um, just kind of a. Uh, uh, a, a, a rough introduction to the uh, diversity of tribal people who have lived on the peninsula since uh, time memorial. Um, and so uh, I felt, I think we all felt that that was, that was an important part of the story here. Uh, they were the original stewards of this land. Uh, the uh, tribes continue to protect resources, work toward restoration, in some instances um, uh, are uh, very, very, very large parts of the community. In the community that I live, uh, there's a large health facility that's that's uh, uh, developed and sponsored by the tribe, uh, a large ed uh, environmental education facility as well. And so uh, we felt that if we were gonna tell the story about the peninsula, then uh, that uh, important part of the story needed to be at the forefront. You know, it's interesting. Um, as I mentioned, I've been in the, uh... The West and the Southwest for, for you know, going on 40, 40 years, and, and certainly there's a lot of indigenous cultures here in the West, in the Rocky Mountains, the Intermountain West, and they take up a rather large span, each, each whether it's the Lakota Sioux or the Apache down in, in Arizona, and yet you look at the Olympic Peninsula, and there are, I believe, eight sovereign tribes there. And it's like um, a pie of sorts. They each have their own section, you know, judging from the map in the book. That, that kind of surprised me as opposed to, you know, one, one indigenous people. Well, part of that uh, is a result of the treaty process uh, in, uh, you know, the 1850s. Uh, while Washington was still a, a territory, um, one of the, the first priorities of, uh, of a territorial government was to establish uh, treaties with the tribes. And, uh, and they, you know, they, they met with uh, different tribes, different language groups or, or around the peninsula and had uh, a, a number of treaties. Um, the villages, uh, which um, were uh, at, primarily at, at river miles and, 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 and stream miles, the, the winter villages were, uh, just a vast uh, diversity of, of of languages and people, and uh, the uh, once the tribes were recognized through treaty through treaty rights, then um, that kind of uh, helped helped define the way our government deals with tribal governments. Were the the tribes open to the lands they were given? And, and I'm thinking about in Wyoming with the uh, Arapaho and the Eastern Shoshone. Um, they were not exactly friendly if you go back you know they they had different points of view and here they found themselves on the same reservation was it was that the case at the olympic peninsula or they all pretty much got along well i think there was no i think there was there was a uh, uh uh yeah generally the tribes uh traded uh quite a bit uh in intermarried there was certainly some skirmishes and and uh and and warfare as well but uh, the orientation, rather than um, uh, the the land, uh, such as the plains or, or southwest tribes, was the the waters, the rivers, the ocean, the intertidal areas, and uh, 
when the treaties were formed here, the tribes had a, a, a much more important um, stake in maintaining their uh, hunting and fishing areas, hunting and fishing rights in the treaties, rather than large land claims. And the whole concept of ownership was, I think, something that was uh, pretty foreign to uh, to tribal people most everywhere at the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now, as you mentioned, um, they're doing a lot of work, or they have been doing a lot of work with, with restoration areas. I know I worked on a freelance story about a year or so ago, and I can't remember which tribe it was, but they were working quite heavily with, with beavers to help restore um, watershed. Well, of course, the Elwha restoration, the uh, largest uh, salmon restoration in the, in the Northwest, was uh, uh, primarily driven by uh, the Elwha tribe. Um, the uh, other tribes are all engaged in uh, primarily salmon and salmon habitat restoration projects where dikes that were put up so that floodplains could be farmed are now uh, being moved uh, away from the away from the river to give rivers more room to to breathe and more spawning and rearing areas for the salmon uh, uh, to, to breathe during flood floods, I mean. Uh, log jams uh, are being engineered. Log jams are being put back where we took away all of the wood and uh, and important structural materials in the river that created pools and riffles uh, that were important for salmon, for spawning, for for hiding, for rearing areas. And um, uh, I'd say that that, um, that 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 the tribes have been really leading the way toward. Uh, the major um, habitat restoration underway on the peninsula and throughout the Pacific Northwest today. Yeah, that's interesting. Now, as I mentioned uh, earlier, the National Park makes up a, a big chunk of the peninsula. Of course, you also have the Olympic National Forest there. As you point out in your book, that peninsula long ago was an island. Um, did that fact lend anything to the evolution of its ecosystems? You know, it had uh, almost everything to do with the evolution of the ecosystems here. Kurt, that's a great question. Uh, if we go back to the to the uh, the Pleistocene Ice Age, the last couple of million years, say at least four times the large uh, Cordilleran ice sheet moved down from the north, ran up against the peninsula, and pretty much surrounded the peninsula. Uh, I, I'm looking out my window out here at Blue Mountain. At the 4,000 foot mark, that's about where the ice hit that mountain. And so one big lobe stretched west, lobe of the ice sheet stretched west, and that's what carved the Strait of Juan de Fuca, the body of water between the peninsula and Vancouver Island. Another lobe stretched south around the Olympics and, and, and plowed out uh, Puget Sound. Uh, which separates us, of course, from Seattle and I-5 and the, the, the big pop populated part of Washington State. And so for extended periods, the animals and plants that lived in the Olympic Mountains were on an island. It was sheer ice to the north and, and, and mostly the east. Uh, there was a big uh, dip where the Chehalis River and the meltwaters from, from the uh, Puget Sound lobe uh, flowed out on the south part of the Olympics. And uh, many species who were, which were just cut off from uh, uh, their families, um, continued to survive on the Olympics. Many became endemic species. I think there's a total of about 28 plants and animals uh, uh, and fish and amphibians that occur in the Olympics and nowhere else. The most popular, of course, being the Olympic marmot, who's the kind of the hero of, of the high country. But there are also other um, 
small mammals and uh as i mentioned uh fish and and, and amphibians and uh and plants yeah you kind of answered my next question um in the book, you mentioned that the National Park is one of the most ecologically diverse parks in the nation, in the national park system. How diverse is that? Well, I think, you know, if you, if, if you figure on the, on the ocean and the sea mammal migrations and the intertidal zone, that alone uh, is, 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 a, is a pretty wild and, 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 and stunningly diverse landscape. Uh, here in the Olympics, uh, the, uh, the California coastal biome and the, and the uh, northern Alaskan communities kind of intersect, they merge here. And so we have just uh, species from, from both south and north. Uh, both intertidal and sea mammal species, and then the inland forests, the old growth forests of the, uh, the the temperate rainforests of the west side, and the drier Douglas fir forests of the east side of the peninsula, which have more in common more in common with the continental forests of uh, the Rockies than than they do with some of the rainforests, Sitka spruce rainforests. And, uh, you know, the elk populations and all of the uh, surrounding animals in the forest component. And then the subalpine and alpine areas, which have a lot of these endemic species that I talked about, and uh, and also uh, the rivers and their salmon populations. And so when you, when you stir that all together into a single ecosystem, it's a phenomenal diversity. Um, I think any component of that would serve well as a national park. And yet it's all uh, contained in a, you know, in a pretty small, you said a little under a million acres um, uh, area of Olympic National Park. And of course, it's it's surrounding wildlands managed by other agencies, Forest Service, state, private, tribal, etc. Yeah, yeah. Now, now some years ago, um, it, it kind of gained fame with the, um, the quietest inch in America. And I, I probably got that wrong. Um, but but basically that's what they called it. <laughs> One square inch of silence. Yeah, Gordon Hempton uh, developed that, and and uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a a, a lovely little place uh, up the Ho Valley. Uh, that uh, he's a, a sound expert, sound uh, recording uh, um, expert who has been around the world uh, recording different sounds in silence and um, and uh, natural sounds, as I think his his. Uh, his uh, strong uh, point is his emphasis. And, uh, you know, you can hear the rain on the leaves and you can hear a little bit of the river through the woods and uh, occasional songbirds, but it's, um, it is one of the quietest spots in the world. Of course, we have also uh, a, a Navy jet base nearby right. and they're, they're training their growler uh, jets out over the coastline and occasionally uh, skirting uh, the mountains. And so it's uh, it's not as quiet as it could be. And that's an issue that, that uh, many uh, organizations out here on the peninsula have been uh, working on trying to fight and get a handle on for, for uh, some years now. Yeah, yeah. I think it's an issue that the travelers should take another look at because I, I do remember writing about it and, and that issue with the, the Navy training um, and the noise it was bringing into um, the national park and, um, yeah, our attorney general here in Washington state, uh, brought suit against the, against the Navy because they're, they, they had exceeded what was, uh, allowed what, what they had described in their environmental impact statement. Uh, the judge, uh, agreed with, with all the points, um, of the, of the challenge, but said, sorry, this is national security and the Navy gets to do it anyway. 
<laughs> have to redo their EIS, but they can still continue to increase their their uh, jet training, growler jet training here. Would be yeah, up. yeah. It sounds like there's a a case out in Cumberland Island National Seashore um, in Georgia, and a, a lawsuit brought against the Park Service over the the management of of feral horses there on the National Seashore and. One of the things the, the Department of Justice said in trying to have the suit dismissed was, well, we didn't give you the okay to sue us. So um, <laughs> That's a novel defense. It is a novel defense. This is Kurt Rappencheck with National Parks Traveler. We're talking today with Tim McNulty about his latest book project, Salmon, Cedar, Rock, and Rain, Washington's Olympic Peninsula. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. So, Tim, as we mentioned earlier, um, the park has had its share of controversy. Uh, as you noted, Karsten Lean recounted battles over the peninsula's forests in Olympic Battleground, a, a fine, thick book. Um, if you really want to learn about the history of the Forest Service and the National Park Service and John Muir and Gifford Pinchot, um, it's a great one to, to start with. He did a heck of a lot of research with that. Um, you also cited uh, Embattled Wilderness, there are ever-increasing crowds of visitors that impact the natural resources of the peninsula. Of course, the non-native mountain goats have been in the news in recent years. And climate change, of course, which is taking a toll on, on the park's glaciers. Um, in, in preparing for our conversation today, I tried to find out exactly how many glaciers there are today in, in Glacier National Park. And the best I could come up with was, well, almost 200. And, and I'm guessing it's probably closer to 150. Mm -hmm. You, you, you know? mentioned Glacier National Park. Did you mean Olympic? Um, I was talking about glaciers, but I might have mentioned Glacier National Park instead of Olympic National Park. But now, now that I mention it, do you know how many glaciers are in Glacier National Park? <laughs> They're a little under, a little under 200. Uh, but, you know, some of them are, are uh, uh, very, very, very small ice, you know, just uh, uh, little little ice fields. Sure. And, uh, uh, it looks like we've lost uh, almost a third of those, uh, you know, since since that initial survey was done in, in the 80s. They've either uh, totally disappeared, like the Anderson Glacier, the Ferry Glacier, or they've uh, uh, shrunk to, to the point where their, you know, uh, remnant ice fields no longer kind of functioning as, as, uh, as, as glaciers. Um, and the large glaciers of Mount Olympus, uh, the Eel Glacier, the Blue Glacier, um, I'm, I'm sorry, the, the Blue Glacier, the, 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 white, the white Glacier, uh, the Eel Glacier on Mount Anderson, 
Um, two of those glaciers are being studied as part of a long-term um, glacier study project where uh, they're going in in the uh, spring and uh, setting up stakes, going back in the fall, taking measurements, measuring how how fast the glaciers are moving, how quickly they're receding, uh, year by year uh, data sets that are that are showing um, all of the glaciers uh, really really taking a, a strong hit from from uh, global warming, uh, and that that work is is ongoing now uh, in both uh, Olympic uh, Mount Rainier and North Cascades National Parks. Uh, 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 John Radel from uh, uh, worked for North Cascades for many years is directing that study, and uh, the Olympic glaciers are going faster than the other ones because they're uh, lowest low, lower elevations, of course, than than Mount Rainier or the North Cascades. They're here because we had such a tremendous amount of precipitation, but now with that precipitation falling more and more as rain rather than snow, the glaciers are really taking a hit. The south-facing glaciers, particularly, are disappearing, and I've I've seen that just in my time here. In the fifty years I've been roaming around the Olympics, um, uh, glaciers that I've roped up to climb on Mount Anderson, the Eel Glacier, and and uh, uh, are just gone. Yeah, it's re it's really kind of sad. I mean, uh, my wife and I were up in uh, Grand Teton National Park back in August, and um, Skillet Glacier on Mount Moran, um, one of the most famous glaciers because it's so visible is really kind of vanishing before your eyes. You know, it, it's there, there's some interesting things with vanishing glaciers. I mean, one, um, we're seeing more and more stories of the artifacts that they reveal, the archaeological artifacts that they reveal. And, of course, there's the, the concern over when the glaciers are gone, they take a water source with them. They do, and and here in the Olympics, uh, a lot of the rivers are uh, have glaciers in the headwaters. So the big West End rivers, the the Ho, the Queets, the Quinault, are glacial fed rivers, and uh, they're very very important salmon streams. Uh, and so that's a concern with not only uh, a, a lesser uh, source of of uh, of the rivers, but uh, warming temperatures. So that icy water coming off the glaciers is as cold as water gets, and it's a great, great, great uh, uh, help to uh, to fish to native fish. There is. Um, uh, as well as uh, over more on the northern and eastern flanks of the Olympics, uh, snow snowmelt glaciers, gla uh, snowmelt rivers rather, glacier rivers that, that that do not have glacial sources. The Dungeness River that we live uh, uh, near uh, is uh, is a river like that, and and those rivers are are wholly dependent on the the winter snowpack in the mountains. That's our equivalent of the reservoirs here. Is sure. these. Uh, snow that that used to be pretty much you know pretty solid above 2500 3000 feet um uh winters now where uh we get big warm rainstorms coming in december november december uh and uh the snowpack uh diminishes up to you know up to say 4 or 5000 feet uh, um, 2015 was um, a kind of a benchmark year. It was a, a drought year with a with a, a very very warm winter, and uh, it reached uh, the kind of conditions in the Olympics that the uh, the climate scientists over at the University of Washington were projecting for uh, 2040 2050. And so it, it kind of gave us a little bit of a glimpse of what's in store if 
climate change if global warming continues apace. And that's the year that famously the Queets rainforest burned, you know, uh, an, an area that gets well over 100, you know, 150 inches uh, of rain. Um, and so it's, uh, it's pretty frightening. Yeah, you know, um, it directly impacts half of the title of your book. Um, the, the salmon fisheries and, of course, the, the cedar forests. Um, any, any predictions? Uh, I think uh, a lot of people are doing everything they can to, to try to uh, turn, turn, turn this around somewhat or slow the pace of, uh, of global warming. Um, one of the main uh, issues that, that uh, uh, came up on the peninsula, I'd say just in the last uh, five or six years, is uh, those uh, natural second growth forests that I was, that I was telling you about earlier, uh, what we're calling legacy forests. Um, forests that were logged and then just came back on their own uh, and have a lot of diversity, some big trees, occasionally some very big trees are uh, very, very important for carbon sequestration, for, for absorbing carbon out of the atmosphere and storing it in the trees, in the roots, in the soil. Uh, and so we're trying to work uh, to get the State Department of Natural Resources that manages a lot of the second growth forests at lower elevation to kind of back off on logging those legacy forests and uh, use those forests for the much more important work that they do storing carbon rather than providing fiber for uh, for the mills. Yeah, yeah. But, but how do you replenish the moisture that is captured by the snow fields and the glacier. I mean, when they're gone, what does that mean for the, the fisheries in, in all the rivers that course through the Olympic Peninsula? Yeah, well, it's, 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 it's hard to say, and, and no one really knows, Kurt. It's a, it's a, it's a, 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 a very troubling question. Um, in the meantime, I think uh, the, the different agencies, primarily the tribes, also the, the, the State Department of Fish and Wildlife, it, are trying to work with restoring the natural functions of rivers so that they could provide the best possible salmon habitat they can facing this unknown of uh, what's going to happen with a, a lesser snowpack and, and uh, much reduced glaciers. Uh, yeah, and so uh, restoring restoring ecosystems, restoring river watershed ecosystems to the best uh, point possible so that they may be in their best condition to deal with, to provide habitat, to encourage the survival of salmon in the face of uh, reducing snowpack is uh, is the main is the main effort uh, underway now. And of course, trying to restore threatened, species threatened threatened species of salmon runs there's uh five that are listed uh as threatened under the endangered species act and there are recovery plans for for all of those fish and all of the agencies and the tribes are working on that yeah yeah now uh against that backdrop of doom and gloom um you write in the, your new book that the ecosystem that holds up the peninsula and the national park is remarkably resilient how do you, how do you mean that? I mean, after we we're just talking about uh, a loss of glaciers and possible impacts on the rivers and fisheries. Well, you know, I'm going back to that uh, that that topic we were talking about a little earlier, uh, the ice age, and uh, and so if you'll recall, the northern peninsula, the eastern peninsula, 
was uh, totally buried by a 4,000-foot ice sheet. It was then uh, scraped raw, pretty much, as those ice sheets, uh, as those ice sheets uh, retreated. Um, following the Ice Age was a, a, a warming era, a warming time they call the hypsothermal, where uh, it became uh, Mediterranean-like conditions on the Olympic Peninsula. Hmm. And, yet, uh, and then uh, following that, of course, uh, the climate kind of stabilized, we're saying about maybe five or 6,000 years ago, the closed canopy forests we know today uh, uh, came back. But even within that time, there was a little Ice Age, there were warming epics species moved around some species came up from california uh all those rivers that were absolutely scoured and washed out um, by the ice age all became uh filled with native fish stocks and so um the genetic endurance of the of the peninsula which goes back through the two million years of the ice age has seen us through some pretty remarkable and catastrophic change. And that's kind of tr true for most of the Northwest forests, which experienced, uh, you know, volcanic eruptions, um, uh, um, glacier advances, uh, epic fire episodes, um, that these forests, these ecosystems are resilient. And here on the Olympic Peninsula, because of the park, because of uh, the, the wild areas of the National Forest, a good part core of that ecosystem was preserved, which uh, I think is going to be extremely important in, uh, in, in, in helping, uh, helping us through the coming changes. So I, I do have faith that the ecosystem will will make it in some in some form and i think the important work we do now is to try to as aldo leopold said uh make sure all the cogs and wheels are still here return extirpated species like the wolf uh uh get rid of uh invasive species uh that were damaging the ecosystem like the mountain goats and do all we can to uh to restore uh, uh ecological process and and uh healthy habitats what concerns you most about the uh, future of the peninsula and the national park, the ecosystems? Well, I think you know, no, probably no surprise from our from our discussion. It's it's the uh, it's the onslaught of global warming. Um, it's it's something that I think uh, um, none of us uh, ever really imagined, even twenty years ago, twenty five years ago, and it's now the when I talk to scientists, it is the the foremost concern on on their on their parts um and it's not only a concern here it's a concern uh on of you know of the entire world i'd say particularly here with human communities uh the tribes which of course are all coastal tribes they're all living in the in, you know with the threat of uh, rising sea level um flooding rivers um and so it's um you know the, the 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 climate aspect the climate change aspect is in a realm of its own Beyond that, I think uh, you know my other my other concern would be preserving uh, a healthy genetic base of of the forests of the wildlife communities to try to resemble what was here originally that has gone through those profound changes in the past. So they might be able to carry the place through the profound changes there to come. Conversely, um, what makes you most optimistic? I mean, and there, there's. More than a few things I'm sure you can point to, whether it's uh, the watershed scale restorations or 
Absolutely that. But 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 I think that, you know, as as was with me, this, you know, th this place just reached out and touched my heart. And I think it does that with millions and millions of people. We have uh, Olympic National Park visitation, you probably know, two and a half million a year. There's uh, the people who, who who live here year round, the people who who uh, pass through. Um, it's a place that the world cares for. It's a biological or, or rather, a, a, you know, a world heritage site, a, a, a biosphere reserve. Um, and uh, I think that any time that a specific problem, a challenge arises, uh, I've always uh, uh, been incredibly uh, impressed with uh, how many people from outside this area become involved, you know, and uh, and help uh, lead the Park Service to make good decisions. Uh, the, the Native American people, the tribal people who live uh, on the peninsula are continually working to um, protect and defend natural resources. And they're a very important, powerful and, and influential voice in, in political decisions as well. So I think we're uh, we're you know what what uh, what gives me the most hope is is that the power of this place to to you know, to find voices and people that will be advocating for it. Well, Tim, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today about your new book, Salmon, Cedar, Rock, and Rain, and uh, I hope the the listeners out there um, take to heart what I said early on in in the introduction that uh, pick up this book and it'll give you um, uh, more than a few reasons to go back and visit the Olympic National Peninsula if you haven't been there, Olympic Peninsula, if you haven't been there in the National Park and the surrounding National Forest, because it, it really is a, an incredible place um, with all the life and diversity and ecosystems that uh, exist there. Well, thank you, Kurt. It's been a, a pleasure. You asked some great provocative questions, and uh, I, hope I, I hope I rose to the occasion. <laughs> That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. The Olympic Peninsula and its ecosystems truly are a magnificent collection of natural spaces that you should include on your travels. Thanks to Tim McNulty, his fellow contributing writers and photographers, and the folks at Braided River Press for focusing their attention on this peninsula. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.